This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Oh, good morning, ladies. Were you cold this morning? I was cold. My kids continue to dress in their shorts and t-shirts, and I'm adding more layers. But that's normal. Well, this morning, we enter into the story with the apostles performing a miracle. Um, We're looking at chapters 3 and 4 of Acts, and we're seeing that they do a miracle through the power of Jesus' name, and more than 2,000 people come to Christ. The rulers and the authorities take notice, and they're beginning to oppose this movement, because after all, it is threatening their influence, it's threatening their established power, it's, a th- it's threatening the norm that they were used to. The rulers and authorities at this time thought that putting Jesus to death had put an end to this, uh, or to this teaching, but they were wrong. Here they are again. It's Solomon's colonnade, nonetheless, once again facing the same situation that they had faced just days, literally 50 days earlier, when they had been... Um, opposing Jesus and his teaching. And now, even though they thought that teaching was gone, that they had got rid of the problem, here they were, opposing it again. And this time, the teaching was coming from Jesus' disciples, Peter and John. So if you open your Bible to Acts chapter 3, you can follow along. So Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now it's important to notice that there's three times in Jewish tradition of which they went to the temple to pray. They went at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. Now a crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. This gate is a huge gate, and this would have been the main entrance to the temple that most of the Jewish, those who were Jewish, would have came through. So it says that um, This man was carried to the temple gate, where every day he begged from those going into the temple courts. So he was strategic. He was being placed at a place where he knew, first of all, people who have the virtue of charity were going to be, and he also knew that there would be large numbers of people here. So this was a strategic place to go. It says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at Adam as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. This wasn't like physical therapy where it's a six-month process before you get strong in your ankle. This was instant healing. It says he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts. And he wasn't just walking. He was jumping and praising God. So while some commentaries refer to this as the first apostolic miracle, earlier in verse 243, it says that many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. And although Jesus had ascended, 
He had sent his spirit, like we heard about last week, in chapter 2 at Pentecost. And it's by the spirit's power that they are now performing miracles, just like Jesus did when he was with them. In John chapter 14, in Jesus' one of his last times with his disciples before he was crucified, as he's sharing with his disciples in the upper room, he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. And he will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's a huge promise. Huge. So, so Peter, with that in mind, turns to the lame man, and he says, Gold and silver I do not have, but what I have, I give you. And that resulted in complete healing. And as we'll see in the next few verses, that brought glory to God. So Acts, continuing in Acts verse 9, it says, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, they had noticed God used this miracle to draw an audience, to draw a crowd, to draw questions. This, was, this miracle occurred for the glory of God. It says, while the beggar, in verse 11, it says, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to him in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. I love that, that the beggar was still holding on to Peter and John, even though he was walking and jumping. He didn't need them for physical support, but he knew that they were the source of the spiritual healing, and he wanted to continue to walk with them and learn with them, from them, about this newfound faith in Jesus. So this miracle gathers a crowd, and it's to that crowd that Peter preaches. Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that our murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. See, so Peter's immediately addressing their awe and wonder. He's saying, why are you surprised? You saw this. You were witnesses to this just 50 days ago. You saw this. And you saw it and you didn't believe. You put to death the very one who this power comes through. He drives home the terrible reality of their guilt of killing Jesus. You see, Jesus had been a public figure for years, for three years. So they knew, they were aware of his power and his capabilities. 
But then he goes on to share the good news. He says, but Jesus is alive. The one you murdered is alive. And he's putting his power on display now, again. You see, he hasn't given up on us. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps wooing us. He keeps showing us his power. In those days, a man's name represented his character. It stood for his authority and power. So you'll notice Peter always says, we did this in Jesus' name, in the power of Jesus' name. When Jesus was being named as a baby, it says in Luke 131, when it says, you will be with a child and give birth to a son. This is the angel talking to Mary. He says, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is what the name Jesus means. The Son of the Most High. The one who reigns over the house of Jacob forever. The one whose kingdom will never end. In Jesus' name means by the power of and by the will of Jesus. This miracle was performed by Jesus' power and it was performed for the glory of God. It's not an act of magic. It's an act of faith in a person. Peter continues speaking to them. Verse 17. I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Again, he's still addressing all the Jewish people who had gone to the temple for prayer. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled that he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that this, that Christ would suffer. And then he says to them, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up to you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And verse 25 is key. He says, And you are the heirs of the prophet and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So if you look at that segment there, I love the first line. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Verse 17. See what Peter's doing there? Even though he's just pointed out the horrible crime and guilt of the people, he's extending grace. He reminds them. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, you acted in ignorance. You didn't understand. You didn't fully understand. He reminds them that they're heirs of the covenant, spoken of by the prophets. And they would have been familiar with this. They knew the prophets. They knew the word of God. They knew what was in the Old Testament. And he reminds them who they are. He reminds them that they are a chosen people. That God came first to the Israelites with the intention of blessing 
their nationality first to be a blessing to the world. He says, even though they killed Jesus, they are still God's people. Why? Because this is the amazing part. Even though they killed God, they're still his people. Because God's covenant is irrevocable. And just hang with that. God's covenant is irrevocable. It's not dependent on what we do, how we respond. It's dependent on God alone. This is why nothing we do can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing leaves. None of our sin, none of our messiness, none of the things that we hang our heads low with shame about. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because His covenant, it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on Him. Our part and their part, Peter is saying, is simply to repent and to believe. You see, the miracle of the lame man being healed, it's a poignant illustration for us. It's a picture of us, each one of us, comes to Christ as a beggar. We're dead in our sin. Just like the lame man's legs, his body was dead. He could not walk. He could not move on his own. He's a picture of our neediness before Christ. We are all beggars. He holds up his cup asking for money, and we don't even know what we need. We think we want something else. We think we want something in this world. And he holds up his cup asking for money. And then you have Peter as God's vessel, instead giving him life, giving him healing. He wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking him. It wasn't by chance that in a crowd of hundreds of people, it was Peter and John who were closest to him. He couldn't move around. He was just laying on a mat. It was God's divine appointment. It said Peter took him by the right hand, he helped him up, and he instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. It's not a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Isaiah 41.10 says, one of the prophets says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise of God, to uphold us with his righteous right hand. The next thing Peter does is he calls them to repent. He says, repent then and turn to God, verse 19, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So what is repentance? The word repent is a military term, and it means to make an about face. When we repent, we turn away from our sin, and we turn to God. When we repent, our sins are wiped out. I love how in this verse, it's juxtapositioned against the word refreshing. Because after rep repentance, refresh refreshing comes from the Lord. Think about if you're in a restaurant, and you've got your, your glass of water, and the waiter comes by. If your glass is empty or half full, the waiter will ask if they can refresh your drink. 
You see, a drink can't be refreshed unless there's room for refreshing. Repentance creates room for refreshing. You can't fill a container that's already full. Repentance is an emptying of sin, which in turn gives space and room within us to be refreshed by the Spirit of God. I was sharing with my small group last week, just talking about repentance, a personal story I had. And when I first started coming here um, to small group as a very young believer, I remember sitting in the group and I would, I'd come here, I'd come here and I, on Tuesdays and I'd come here on Sundays to Sunset Presbyterian Church. And I could clean up and look polished, and look like I had it together. And then on the weekends, my go-to was alcohol. And I would drink myself pretty much to oblivion. And that was my pattern. And then I'd clean up on Sunday, go to church, come on Tuesday. And I kept saying to God, Lord, I'm trying to clean up. I'm trying to figure this out. And as I was sitting in a small group one time, it was truly a Holy Spirit moment. And I just sensed this whisper that said, Lindsay, said, you love alcohol more than you love me. And right at that moment, my tears just started flowing because God showed me I was filled up. I was filling myself up with something here on this world that was more important to me than him. And from that time on, I understood it was truly a personal miracle. And I was able to release that. And he was able to refresh me. And from that point on, my faith and my life with God, it went crazy. I enrolled in seminary. I could not get enough of getting refreshed with the Word of God. It was crazy. I quit my job as a graphic designer and went to seminary to become a pastor. God is good. He's the best refreshment we can receive. But first we have to let go of the things that fill us, the things that hold us back, the things that keep us from being refreshed. Now chapter 4 says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Many who heard the message believed. See, God had performed a miracle through Peter. Peter shared the glory of that healing, pointed them all to God, and many believed. 2,000 were added to their number that day. Well, this freaked the rulers out. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law in Jerusalem, they had an emergency meeting. They're like, oh my goodness. And Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caphias, I don't know if I'm saying that right, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And they said, by what power do you do this? By what name do you do this? Now the opposition consisted of priests, 
as it said. There were 24 priests in the Sanhedrin at this time, so they were being upset. It says the opposition consisted of the temple guard. This was the second most powerful person in Jerusalem, apart from the Roman governor or army. So this guy had a lot of weight, a lot of clout. In the opposition consisted of the Sadducees. Now they weren't a huge group, but they were the upper class. They were wealthy and they were powerful. And they had recognized early on that if the Jews were going to survive with the occupation of under Roman occupation, they had to get friendly with the Romans. They had to be in a close relationship with the Roman authorities and keep things good on that level. So these three groups are what made up the Sanhedrin, which it'll be later called. This is the opposition that the apostles and the believers, the early church, are facing. Peter replies to them in verse 8. It says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today of an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Again, he claims the glory to God. And he doesn't mince words. He says right there, he says, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And my favorite verse says, 4.13, when the opposition, the rulers, the Sadducees, the priests, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. These were common fishermen. These were what our world might pass away as average Jews. Yes, they knew the Jewish doctrine, but they hadn't gone to the special schools that the, the Sadducees had gone to. They didn't have special educations. They were ordinary men who had been with Jesus. And then verse 14, it says, but since they could see the man who was healed, they saw the evidence right before them, they could say nothing. Because they knew if they started um, going after Peter and John now, that the crowd would revolt. And it's interesting, just a side note on this, it's interesting that this situation occurred in the exact same place recorded in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 31. And in that passage, the religious leaders at that time, most likely these same ones, are in the temple at the exact same place, Solomon's Colonnade, and they're interrogating Jesus at that place. And Jesus has just performed miracles, just like Peter and John, and he has just proclaimed his Father's name. And again, the religious leaders do not believe they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus challenges them and says, I've shown you miracles. And he simply asks, you want to kill me? For which miracle do you want to kill me? So here they are, exact same situation. And again, the opposition is arising. So in the next few verses, the Sanhedrin continues to strategize on how they can get rid of um, this teaching, how they can stop the apostles. And eventually they threaten them, I think they, they throw them into jail one night, they command them to stop, and then they let them go. 
And then upon their release, Peter and John go back to the people and report all that, the, all that they've said to them. And in verse 28, it says, All the believers raised their voices together in a beautiful prayer to God. Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand. I love that. Stretch out your hand to heal. Doesn't that remind you what Peter did? He stretched out his hand to the beggar, just like God stretches out his hand to us to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions as his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned lambs or houses sold them, bought that, took, brought that money to the sale of the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then it goes on to also it introduces Barnabas, who we'll learn a lot more about later, who is doing the same. He's one of those people that is laying his belongings at the feet of the apostles for the sake of the gospel message. Such a beautiful picture of the state of the early church. It says all the believers were one heart, one in heart and mind. In the King James Version, that word is one accord. Now the Greek word for that means united, in unison. In the first use of this word, we see it in Acts 1.14, in the upper room when the disciples and the women were united in prayer. It's used again in Acts 2.1, when the 120 believers gathered together. It's used again in Acts 2.46, when the community of 3,000 gathered together in singleness of heart. And now here again, Acts 4.24, the believers were one in heart and mind. You see, unity, singleness of heart, one of cord, this becomes the mark of Christian community in the early church. This is what it means to belong. Now in closing, I want to point out to us, I want to just look back at the different responses of the people, the different people that we've looked at in this passage. First, I want you to look at the beggar's response. Just want you to consider these. And then the Jewish people's response, those who were religious, but didn't believe in Christ yet. They were Jewish and were headed to the temple. Then you can look at the rulers, the priests, the Sadducees, the apostles in the early church. And I'm going to ask you, which one, I want you to consider which one is like you, and which one do you want to become more like? Will you be like the beggar? Will you recognize your neediness? Will you look up? Will you receive true life? Will you be like the Jewish people? Will you let go of your unmet expectations, the way you thought things were going to turn out? But they didn't. You see, they wanted an earthly kingdom, and they wanted power in that kingdom. Will you let go of what you expect? Will you trust God 
with what he is offering, even though it doesn't match what you think you need or want or desire? Will you be like the apostles? Will you follow Jesus? Will you depend on him and meet with him regularly in prayer? Will you take others to Jesus when you see them in need? Will you share God's message boldly despite opposition? Will you remain faithful to God regardless of the personal or physical cost? Will you be with Jesus? Will you be like the rulers, the priests, and the Sadducees? Will you cling to your own authority, your own system of making life work? Will you let go of your fear? Will you allow your security to be found in Jesus, not in your circumstances, not in your position, not in your power? Will you be like the early church? Will you be of one heart and mind with your fellow sisters and brothers in Christ? Will you surrender your personal preferences and agendas about what church should be, how church should act, how Sunday morning should be? There's so many different ways that we bring this in. Will you surrender those? Will you share your resources, your time, your finances, with others as they have needs? Will you raise your voice in prayer together to our great God? Will, remember, will you remember the most important thing we all have in common is Jesus? And that's what puts us in one accord. Which one are you most like? And which one do you want to become? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for healing. We thank you for miracles. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the power of your name, your holy name, Lord, that continues to offer us grace, forgiveness, that allows us to come before you and honestly confess the things we are ashamed of, the ways we have turned away from you, the things we have filled ourselves up with. And Lord, you look at us and you say, you're still my child. I love you. I died for you. Follow me. Follow me. Take my right hand. Let me refresh you. Follow me. Thank you, God, that that is the kind of God we serve and brings us together as this group of women here Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. In Jesus' precious name, amen.